Welcome to the Campus Exchange, an AEI for Students podcast. I'm Robert Shore, a senior at the University of Miami and a member of the AEI Executive Council program. Today, I'm very excited to share a conversation I moderated with AEI's Ryan Bird on how the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted Latin America. Before getting started, I want to let you know that the AEI Executive Council program gives current undergraduates the opportunity to engage with AEI scholars through conversations like these and to improve the quality and diversity of public policy dialogue on their campuses. If you want to get involved or learn more about AEI's work on college campuses across the country, just check out the link in the show notes and make sure to follow us at AEI for Students on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. With that, here's Ryan Berg. Today, we are joined by Dr. Ryan Berg. Dr. Berg is a research fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he focuses on transnational organized crime, narco-trafficking, and illicit networks, but also studies Latin American foreign policy and development issues. Before joining AEI, Dr. Berg served as a research consultant for the World Bank, a Fulbright scholar in Brazil, and a visiting doctoral fellow at the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva, Switzerland. Dr. Berg has been published in a variety of policy journals. He's a fluent Spanish and Portuguese speaker, and he has not one, but two master's degrees from Oxford, where he also received his PhD in political science. Again, we are delighted to have Dr. Berg with us to discuss Latin America in the time of COVID. Let's jump right in. Dr. Berg, welcome. Could you start off by giving us a brief overview of what the Latin American political and economic landscapes looked like pre-COVID-19 pandemic. Thanks very much for having me, and thank you for that very charitable introduction. Robert, this is actually the second time that I've spoken at the University of Miami in the last year and a half, so thank you for having me back again. Last time was in person. It was a great pleasure to be down in Florida and to make a nice weekend out of it in Miami. I hope that the third time will be again in person, but I'm delighted to be here through Zoom, and I'm delighted to see that we have a number of participants on the call. So the landscape was very different before the pandemic hit, of course, as most regions were. Latin America was experiencing a fairly stable period in its history. I wouldn't say that the economic growth or the the dynamism of the region was at its apex, but it was certainly in a a much better position than it is now. I think that the the COVID-19 pandemic has really battered the the Latin American economy. It's definitely damaged or revealed a lot of underinvestment, perennial underinvestment in things like healthcare infrastructure. It has also highlighted in a number of ways Latin America as the most urbanized region in the world. Something like 75% of the region's citizens live in cities or in urban peripheries. And so when we see and when we look at the number of cases in the region, urbanization has a lot to do with that because urbanization has proceeded in, in a pretty haphazard manner in a lot of Latin American cities. And so many people find themselves on the peripheries in, in cities where things are very informal. They're living in very densely populated neighborhoods. There is no such thing as social distancing. Sometimes you're living in neighborhoods where people are, are only able to afford multi-generational or even multi-family homes. And so all it takes is for one person to get sick and they basically bring the virus to the entire region. 
And so there are a number of things like that, you know, perennial investment, underinvestment in, in healthcare, urbanization in the region, inequality, persistent inequality that have really exacerbated the situation with COVID-19. And so night and day transformation starting in sort of late February, early March, from what we saw as a typical region with a lot of hustle and bustle, some economic growth going on, really interesting political developments in the region. There was a resurgence, a little bit of a resurgence populism to the situation that Latin America finds itself in now, which is one of the most affected regions of the world where there are large numbers of people infected. Latin America represents about 8% of the world's population, and yet it's one third or more of the total caseload. So when we're talking about the pandemic in the region, we're really talking about a night and day transformation from sort of February to March when things were, let's say, normal to the pandemic really hitting the region. Were Latin American countries' healthcare systems ready for the COVID-19 pandemic? What regions were getting hit or are getting hit the hardest? And what regions, if any, have weathered the storm relatively well? You know, it's a really difficult question to answer because the virus itself is so dynamic and fluid. And so some of the countries to which we pointed at the outset of the pandemic and said, you know, look, these are really shining examples of how to handle the pandemic have experienced a second or third wave that's completely devastated the country. And so I'm thinking of a a place like Peru, which had a very strict lockdown at the outset, stricter than, than most of the region. It avoided massive infections at the outset, unlike countries like Brazil and Mexico. But what ended up happening in Peru was a sort of fatigue with lockdown measures and also a number of people convinced that living in a large city like Lima of seven or eight million people was not a place that they wanted to wait out, neither the pandemic nor the lockdown measures. And so what we saw was a few months after these measures, the fatigue hit, and there was actually a mass migration mass exodus out of the city in which people took COVID with them, literally took COVID with them and spread it to the rural hinterlands of Peru. And now Peru is one of the most affected countries in the world on a per capita basis. A small country of 26, 27 million people significantly affected. The fluidity and the dynamism of the situation makes it really difficult to say, you know, these are the the countries that have responded well, and, and these are the countries that haven't responded well. In most cases, there are countries that haven't responded well and they've cleaned up their response or countries that we sort of praised at the beginning, like a Peru or like a Colombia, where the the, the lockdown was pretty significant, the response was pretty swift, and then they were later hit with, with a second wave. Then there were the outlier countries like Brazil and Mexico, which from the start had a very different approach. Some would call them the herd immunity approach. Others would call it the, especially in Brazil, the Portuguese expression, um estado perverso, a a perverse state that just simply doesn't care about certain neighborhoods that are are most highly affected by this, this kind of virus. Again, the ones that are largely urban and peripheral, largely poor communities, marginalized communities where the spread or transmission of COVID 19 is far easier than it is in less densely packed spaces. And those countries, you know, from the start, were very much hands-off. Jair Bolsonaro, the, the president of Brazil, kind of mimicked the American administration and much of his rhetoric. He didn't believe in social distancing. He was, he was touting the fact that he was taking hydroxychloroquine at, at, at one point. He said that it helped him 
get through COVID when in fact he, he did contract it. And because he wasn't really a big believer in the virus, uh, he, he famously called it a, a gripezinho, which is a little flu in, in Portuguese. He was still holding mass rallies. And eventually that, that caught up to him and, and he himself and, and about 25 or 30 members of his staff also caught COVID-19. Mexico, similar situation. There was a late start. President Andres Manuel López Obrador, or AMLO, was not very keen on, on lockdown measures. Mexico was slow to start. And as a result, it's also one of the most affected countries in the region and in the world. It has the highest mortality caseload of, of any country in the world. So that is the number of people who die after contracting COVID in a particular country. And so what we see about Mexico is after people are contracting COVID, they're not getting better at the same rates as they are in, in, in other places. And so I just looked before this chat at the Johns Hopkins University trends. It looks like about 9.8% of people who contract COVID in Mexico are dying. And compare that to about a 2 or 2.5% two rate in the United States and, and other countries of the European Union. So there's this big disparity there as well as the overall number of cases in a country like Mexico, where their leader as well was skeptical of quick, decisive measures at the outset of the pandemic. Thank you. And, and jumping back to President Bolsonaro in Brazil. So he was one of the first world leaders to contract coronavirus. And you briefly touched on how he's responded nationwide to the pandemic. But how might the pandemic in Brazil and also him contracting the virus itself, how could that politically play out for his presidency? Well, I, I wrote in a piece for foreign affairs in early October, sorry, foreign policy in, in early October, that Bolsonaro, much like President Donald Trump, excels in performative politics. And so it was important for him to use his own personal recovery as a type of metaphor for the Brazilian country's recovery, much as I think President Donald Trump tried to do as well. And so the, the message all along from the Palacio Planalto and, and all of Jair Bolsonaro's advisors was that the president was fine. This was not a significant case of COVID. Even if it was a significant case of COVID, someone who is in as immaculate a condition as Jair Bolsonaro, that is to say a former athlete, would recover quickly from it because, again, he, he called it just a gripezinho, just a, just a small flu. And so everything that they did, all of the public messaging and all of the imagery that they used to confer upon the president and his recovery was sort of performative in that sense. It was sort of to reaffirm their narrative that, you know, we just have to keep working through this. We're learning to live with the virus. We can't close down the economy. We need to, we need to continue working through this, much as I think the U.S. administration was using some of that same rhetoric. And so, you know, for him, it was really performative. One thing that's very interesting is that his poll numbers have actually risen after contracting COVID. But I don't think that his poll numbers have risen because he's managed to beat COVID. I think it has more to do with a number of policies that the Brazilian state has pursued, namely a bolstering of the so-called Bolsa Familia program, which is a, an unconditional cash transfer program to some of the poorest people in the country. The Brazilian Congress now has twice voted to increase the amount of money that that cash transfer program gives to, to needy families living on the margins. And so 
What we've seen is Bolsonaro actually experiencing some of the highest popularity ratings of his entire presidency. Again, in my opinion, not because he used his recovery from COVID as a sort of performative act to use a metaphor for the nation, but more because of the the policy basis here. At the same time, he was seeking greater amounts of social support for people who really needed it. But nevertheless, he he is sitting in a very strong position now where he's starting to look at his reelection in 2022 and some of the challengers are starting to make themselves known. And he sits atop all of those hypothetical matchups. And so whatever the exact reason for the rise in his popularity and his polls, he's definitely in one of the best positions that he's found himself in his entire presidency. Thank you. And, and moving north just a little bit from Brazil, talk about Venezuela. So Venezuela faced a politically turbulent year in 2019. Could you help our viewers get a better sense of what events unfolded in Venezuela in 2019? And has the pandemic exacerbated or eased Venezuela's problems? What should we expect out of Venezuela in the coming years? I'll try to give the abbreviated version of Venezuela 2019 and early 2020, although this, is, this was the subject of my first trip to the University of Miami, on which we did a, a full-length lecture. Following the the fraudulent presidential election in 2018, and after Nicolás Maduro decided to inaugurate himself, the international community and the Venezuelan opposition were looking for a solution and decided that within the constitution, namely Article 333, if I'm not mistaken, there was a solution that elevated the office of the opposition speaker in the National Assembly to the position of interim president in the country if there was no legitimate president currently occupying that position. And that has been the opposition's position given the fraudulence that we witnessed in the election. The United States and close to 60 other partners in the international community were quick to recognize Juan Guaido, the gentleman who occupies that position, and has engaged in in a number of diplomatic actions to try to bolster his position, as well as developed a significant sanctions program alongside that diplomatic recognition as leverage points to try to facilitate a political transition in the country. Now, there have been significant ups and downs in this campaign for political transition, and we can talk about them perhaps in the Q&A. There were a couple moments where it felt like the opposition really had Maduro on the ropes, that he was ready to leave the country, that he was looking for his safe landing. The Russians and sort of other international powers supposedly pulled him back from the brink. And then, you know, we're, we're going into early 2020 after some of these events that I've just skipped over and COVID hits. And the COVID-19 pandemic has really given the dictatorial regime in Venezuela a reason to clamp down, a reason to repress political dissent even further than they already were. And so it, it, it's given Maduro, I think, a measure of control that he didn't have, for example, in, in 2019. Having COVID-19 in Venezuela has been effectively criminalized. From what we hear out of human rights reports and a number of agencies working on the ground, not only the facilities in which people are expected to convalesce from COVID-19 are completely decrepit, not only that, but people who have COVID-19 being subjected to significant stigma, significant abuse that we don't see in in other parts of the world, and that certainly are not part of the recovery process from COVID-19. And so what we've seen is an effective criminalization 
of COVID-19 in, in Venezuela and a further level of, of repression. So we can, we can get into that in the Q&A, but I think it's overall been had a pretty detrimental effect on the opposition's ability to organize and to push for political change in the country. And, and it's sort of dovetailed right at a time when the opposition was experiencing significant wind out of its sails already. And so there was a sort of double whammy that hit at the, at the start of 2020, had a significant and negative effect on the opposition's ability to get to, to a political transition in Venezuela. I guess moving farther south in South America this time, before the pandemic, Argentina was facing considerable debt problems. Could you paint a picture for us of Argentina's debt distress before the pandemic? And how has COVID-19 now complicated Argentina's balance sheet? Yeah, that's a good question. So Argentina is a difficult country to describe because it's my Argentine friends don't like me using this term, but but I'll use it anyways. It's, it's it really is a perennial basket case. It has had significant issues uh, paying its bills really since the turn of the century. A hundred billion is the number I'll throw out there for official debt to the International Monetary Fund. Money that was taken out for significant reforms that were sort of half implemented, half not implemented. As always, there had to be a negotiation to restructure those debt repayments. That negotiate that renegotiation took place in a new presidential administration, an administration that went from a center-right to a center-left government. And so there was a significant push to get some debt forbearance so that there would be more time for Argentina to restructure things and to repay a significant portion of that debt to the IMF. So They've now restructured, I think, about 50 billion of the debt. They've pushed it back. And so they, they have to do some more systematic reforms that are demanded by, by the IMF. But the problem is that with the current government as it is, that is to say a center-left government, the IMF is always sort of a piñata in Argentina. It's, it's always something that is on the political chopping block, especially when the political left is, is in power. In Argentina. And so while Argentina is on the hook for about 50 billion in the near future, that is the debt that it's restructured and managed to to negotiate with the new IMF leader, we're not sure if it's going to be repaid. We're not sure if if Argentina is going to be able to repay it. And in particular, what the economic fallout of Argentina's stay-at-home orders are going to be, because Argentina was already in a significant economic crisis before COVID hit. And now COVID has exacerbated that situation yet further. So it's anybody's guess what Argentina is going to look like once a viable vaccine is distributed and people can go back to work safely. But I think it's going to be one of the most affected countries in the region, especially given this pre-existing debt that's going to hang over its head and be a pretty dark cloud over any sort of economic growth it manages after COVID-19. Thank you. And as you may know, I'm currently in Miami, Florida. So about 100 miles south is Cuba, a very relevant topic here. How has Cuba been impacted economically by the pandemic? And what measures has Cuba taken in response? Do you foresee any changing dynamics in Cuba's political system or relationship with the United States after the pandemic is all said and done? Yeah, Cuba was in a really difficult spot even before the pandemic, especially given the Trump administration's policies to squeeze the country 
as part of the target of a so-called maximum pressure campaign in the Western Hemisphere, Venezuela and Nicaragua being the other countries in that maximum pressure campaign. We saw well before the pandemic hit instances of dollarization so that Cubans could use dollars to, to buy goods in Cuba, which, would, which was giving the, the regime there, of course, hard currency, which they needed to import items. We also saw significant rationing well before the pandemic hit. So it's important to note that, that Cuba's economic position was in dire straits before the pandemic hit. And I think the pandemic has probably only worsened the situation there. Now, in terms of the prospects for a new U.S.-Cuba policy, I think that the, the incoming Biden administration is very keen on developing a new stance toward Cuba. I think its natural position, the natural position of President-elect Biden, is to fall back on what the Obama-era policy was, which is to say a significant relaxing of, of sanctions, a significant relaxing of the trade embargo, the opening up of Cuba to more tourism and to more cultural exchanges, and to trying to use some of those exchanges to not only reach the Cuban people, but to rearrange some of the incentives, I think, in their minds for the, the Cuban regime to open up further. Now, I don't think we saw a significant opening under the Obama administration. We saw a lot of Americans joining their European colleagues in Cuba, but I don't think that we saw significant progress on rolling back some of the repressive policies of the Cuban regime. And so my hope would be that the incoming Biden administration would take the lessons of that policy. And if they're keen on going down that road again, then in trying to avoid what they thought didn't work well last time so that we actually target a reopening to uh, real gains for the Cuban people in terms of their ability to organize, to live productive lives, to own business, have private property, et cetera. At this time, we're going to transition into the Q&A. And our first question comes from Jim Chafin. He asks, what do you attribute the higher rate of death after infection in Mexico as compared to other countries? Is this due to poor medical support? I can understand the high number of infections due to the close proximity of people, but that doesn't answer the death percentage. And also, if I can piggyback onto that question, because I'm wondering, how has the pandemic disrupted US, the U.S.-Mexico relationship in terms of trade and, and travel? So if you could just answer both of those. Yeah, I'll answer the second part first, because I think it's easier. Significantly interrupted the relationship that the pandemic was in or is in full swing and was in full swing when the United States signed the new USMCA agreement. And so we were trying to implement a new 21st century trade agreement with Mexico in the middle of a pandemic that had shuttered a lot of supply chains. Also at a time when the United States is starting to talk about so-called nearshoring, bringing supply chains back to, back to North America, back to the Western hemisphere, when we've realized how having supply chains out of Southeast Asia or out of China puts us at significant risk internationally when it comes to things like global pandemics. And so for a while, we saw Mexico shut down. We saw the president of Mexico, AMLO, decide that factories were going to shut down because there was no plan in place for a pandemic, for, for workers to safely continue working in factories that, that play a critical part in producing the, the supply chains on the North American continent. 
because there was no plan in place. Now, eventually, they yielded to pressure, political pressure, and also pressure from manufacturing organizations in Canada and in the United States, which rely on their products to form the entire product ready to be sold on shelves. But it took a significant push to to get the Mexican president to reconsider his position on on opening factories. And so there was a, a point in time where you had industry and unions you know, fighting a pretty tough battle against the Mexican president. And we saw the results of there not really being a deeply integrated North American plan for dealing with supply chains during a pandemic. And so even while we're integrating all of our supply chains, we're becoming more and more economically prosperous, we're still very vulnerable when supply chains have become so complex that they can fall apart at the lack or the absence of a single screw or a single nail. When it comes to the, the tourism angle, look, tourism is one of the three legs of the Mexican economy. And so when there are no Americans and Canadians and Latin Americans on the very gorgeous Mexican beaches, the country is really hurting. And there was an almost total stop of tourism in the summer from the United States to, to Mexico. And so I know a lot of, of that industry was really hurting and, and they were looking, they, they turned to Lopez Obrador for a significant bailout package, some sort of money to, to help them get through. And quite notably, the Mexican president in the region has been one of the largest holdouts in terms of his willingness to finance a large financial package that would take on or incur some debt, but would be a nice propping up of, of desperately flailing businesses looking for help. And so I think the relevant data point here is that Besides the Bahamas, Mexico has spent the least amount of money shoring up its businesses per capita of of any other country in Latin America or the Caribbean. And so his lack of economic response and that lack of economic support for businesses encountering significant difficulties is notable in the region. In terms of the, the overall mortality rate, there's a lot of speculation about this. Because again, you know, the infections are easy to understand when people are living in densely populated areas on the outskirts of Mexico City, a city of you know 20 to 21 million people, one of the largest in the Americas. But that doesn't explain necessarily the death rate. And so I think the death rate has to be explained by the overall quality of medical facilities, significant underinvestment in public health in Mexico, as well as the inequalities in the existing system. And so I haven't visited medical facilities in some provincial places in Mexico, but I do know that the quality of care that people are going to get in the capital, for example, is just worlds apart from what they're going to get, for example, in rural Oaxaca. And so there's just a, a lot of disparity across what is a very large country, a very unequal country, in terms of the quality of the care that people are going to receive. And so I think that also plays a big role in, in explaining the disparity between Mexico and some of its Latin American partners, Latin American colleagues, let's say, in terms of the mortality rate from this virus. Thank you. Our, our next question comes from an anonymous attendee. They ask, how do you think the lack of lasting regional integration have affected the response of Latin American states to the COVID-19 pandemic? Oh, really interesting question. I think regionally speaking, you know, Latin America has been 
Latin America has been dysfunctional for a long time. The best regional institution that we have to deal with common problems in the Americas is the OAS. The OAS for a long time has been pretty toothless when it comes to not only, for example, bringing countries back in line with democratic ideals, but also in rounding up countries or in sort of forging regional consensus. And when you look at the sub-regional institutions that exist within Latin America, things like UNISUR, CELAC, or the Union of Central American States, you really don't have very much unity there either. And so in terms of the impact that it's had, it's, it's made it really difficult to synchronize a response, even within the same sub-region of Latin America, for example, you have countries taking wildly different approaches. You have a country like Costa Rica or, or Panama that have taken pretty normal, both economic and public health stances on this issue. And then you have a country just to the north of those two, like Nicaragua, that's not done anything. It has, has literally not done anything. And in fact, it's, it has had you know government-sponsored and rallies at which attendance was required called Love in the Time of COVID, which was most likely a super spreader event. There's a Lancet article on this. You can, you can go and find it after, after this event, uh, Love in the Time of COVID. And so you know, having that regional synchronized response has been really difficult. And it's been even more apparent when you have the world's most dramatic migratory crisis unfolding at the same time as COVID-19, which is to say Venezuelan migrants, 5.5 million of them, spread throughout the region and the United States, and currently pouring out of Venezuela at a pretty similar rate as they were pre-pandemic, it makes that lack of regional synchronization even more apparent when you have people moving about in such a dramatic fashion, potentially bringing COVID with them, that you, you can see that the lack of region-wide response has definitely exacerbated the situation. But the, the anonymous person who asked the question is exactly right. The institutional capacity just isn't there to forge a regional consensus right now. Latin America is all over the place in terms of its political leadership, in terms of its ideologies, and even in terms of its identities. You know, you've got a lot of countries that are sort of moving in the direction of the Chinese orbit. You've got some that are still really dependent and identified with the United States. And then you've got some that are sort of happy to, to be independent. And so, there's an identity crisis that I see going on in the region as well that is mirrored in the institutional lack of institutional unity. Thank you. Our, our next question comes from Ashley Robinson. Are there any countries in Latin America that the United States or the rest of the world, for that matter, could potentially use as a model for COVID-19 response? Really interesting question. One of the countries that has been most successful, again, the caveat here is what I said earlier, is that this virus is very dynamic, it's very fluid, and when a country is doing well one month, it could be the problem child the next month. But one of the countries that, to me, has seemingly done fairly well throughout this entire pandemic is Uruguay. It's a small country of 3 million people. It's largely rural. Montevideo, I think, as a city, doesn't doesn't have that many people. I'd have to check the population statistics, but it's got to be about a half a million of the 3 million Uruguayos live in Montevideo. You know, there might be a kernel of advice there that we could take from Uruguay and being able to keep most of the life on the, on the ground there going as, as normal. But in many ways, Uruguay as a, an example case for the United States just doesn't fit because, because there are so many differences 
there are more cows in, in Uruguay than there are people. And so it, it's difficult to say, you know, that that's the exact case that, that the United States should take. But of all the regional performers, let's say, you know, Uruguay has done very well, comparatively speaking, in, in terms of constantly having low numbers and, and keeping society, you know, relatively normal. I'll, I'll do air quotes here. Thank you. Our, our next question comes from Yudi Jam, and she says, Miami is sometimes jokingly called the capital of Latin America. Do you see this changing anytime soon? And has or will the city's position be affected by the pandemic? Well, we just had a presidential election in which the messaging from both presidential candidates really seemed to indicate that Miami is indeed still perceived as, as one of the capitals of, of Latin America. And it seems like recent migration patterns to the city are not going to change that anytime soon, which is to say large numbers of Cuban Americans still, a large number of Venezuelans who have just left Venezuela or, or recently departed Venezuela, settling in, in the Miami metro area. And now what we're seeing is actually a lot of Nicaraguenses and Nicaraguans also fleeing the, the repressive policies of Daniel Ortega there, settling in the greater Miami area. So I think all the dynamics that we're seeing is, is going to make Miami continue to be, as you say, the capital of Latin America. Again, you know, I just go back to the messaging that we recently saw in the, in the presidential campaign. To confirm that, it, it seems quite obvious that both candidates were extremely focused on the Miami-Dade County area with specific, you know, targeted type of messaging that you wouldn't see in other parts of the country, even in districts where there were large Hispanic populations. And so it's a unique place. And I, I think it's going to continue that way into the future because of the migratory patterns we're seeing. Thank you. We have another question from an anonymous attendee, a little more broad. What does the future look like for Latin America post-COVID? What are going to be the immediate and long-term challenges facing the region? This is a perfect question, I think, to end on as we're coming up on, our, on the end of our session. There are a couple of big challenges that I think the region is going to have to face. The first and the second are, are both challenges that the United States can help with and should play a prominent role in. The first is the, the development and the successful campaign to vaccinate populations. I think that given the profundity of the crisis in Latin America, a vaccine, a viable workable vaccine widely distributed in a way that's seen as, as egalitarian and, and reaches herd immunity in the region is going to be essential because the, the virus is already so widespread in Latin America that no amount of lockdown, in my opinion, at this point is going to take the region back to where it was in February. It just can't happen. The virus has really spread like wildfire since then. And so a successful vaccination campaign is going to be critical. And I think this is one of the key areas where the United States can help. It can help in the sense that I think that, that the America first foreign policy that we've been pursuing over the last four years has left us sort of dangerously open to foreign influence campaigns in our shared neighborhood of the Western Hemisphere, a neighborhood that we ought to see as increasingly integrated, progressive, culturally similar in many ways, sharing similar migratory patterns, languages, histories, etc. And so I think there's a lot of reason to believe that issues and challenges in Latin America are never really contained within the region. They tend to spill over into 
into other countries and especially into the United States. And so we have an interest in making sure that there's a successful campaign region-wide to vaccinate people and to make sure that it's done in a way that's widespread and to make sure that it's done in a way that's largely egalitarian in countries that aren't exactly known for their equality. So that that's one of the, the main things that I think the United States can help with. And it's going to score us a lot of points on the soft power level as well. It's, it's going to make people think that the United States is once again interested in what's going on in Latin America and that China isn't necessarily the only alternative. The second thing is the, the economic piece. The regional rebuilding element of this is going to be significant, and it's going to be a challenge that's going to be ongoing for about five years or so. The IMF predicts that the region as a whole is going to contract about five or 6%. Now, there are some regional outliers like Mexico, which could be in the double digits, and Brazil, which could be around seven or 8%, although maybe, maybe not so high. And so bolstering economic growth, getting back to a, a good trajectory and ensuring that there isn't a sort of lost generation type of phenomenon shaping up in Latin America will be a very important thing that I think the United States can do. And one, one of the big significant opportunities for a lot of Latin American countries, most of which have free trade agreements already with the United States, is to take advantage of this nearshoring opportunity that I mentioned before. It's a huge opportunity when you have significant industries in the United States looking to relocate their businesses and their supply chains to the Americas where things will have more slack, where if there is some significant international event that is preventing supply chains from functioning like a well-oiled machine, then they have that slack built in so that products don't come in, so to speak, just in time. They have a week or so built in. And so regularizing regimes for regulation, for example, across the Americas could do a whole lot of good in terms of being able to build together and come back from this pandemic a lot stronger than before. One of the last things that I'll mention is urbanization. As I said before, I think we've seen throughout this pandemic the types of cities in Latin America that we don't want not the cities of the future that a lot of leaders talk about, but we've seen the cities that are sort of the ones that we point to and say, not exactly what we want, not a prime example of urban planning, of solid urban planning. And so I think there are a lot of lessons on the urban level to take from the pandemic as well. And this will be particularly relevant for Latin America because it's the most urbanized region of the world. And so if cities are the future of Latin America, then we should seriously study cities and their experience during the COVID-19 pandemic so that when we're building back, we can do so in a more purposeful manner, take those lessons and actually build better cities. Thanks for listening. And if you'd like to learn more about AEI's work on college campuses, visit AEI.org or click on the link in our show notes. And make sure to follow us at AEI for Students on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to learn more about upcoming events for students 